possible new tax plan, the view from the campaign trail, and the real true start of this election season. Welcome to Grand Divisions, a Tennessean policy and politics podcast. This is the week of September 3rd. Happy Labor Day, everybody. That's right. I'm Dave Boucher, investigative reporter. And I'm Joel Ebert, political reporter. It's September. It's really political season now. Traditionally, politicians maybe take August off a little bit. Obviously, that didn't happen this year, but both elections for the gubernatorial race and the Senate race are, are really heating up at this point. Joel spent some time out on the campaign trail with the senatorial candidates. Give us a little preview of, of stories that readers are going to see across the USA Today Network, Tennessee. Yeah, it's two different stories, one on Blackburn's camp, the other on Bredesen's. I spent essentially a day going to these public events that they have. Bredesen, for his, went to four different events that I was able to be at. Uh, traveled from Mount Juliet to uh, Crossville, then to Maryville, uh, which is in East Tennessee, and then finally in Sevierville. Essentially, uh, three of the four events that Bredesen had were not really political. He tried to downplay the politics of them, uh, said that he was just there to learn about issues and ranging from uh, the opioid crisis to senior issues like Social Security and then at the one in Maryville, he was talking to a group of women uh, where he talked about health care. And again, he was really just kind of listening to the audience, hearing what they had to and say. And it's this, this is idea that he's clearly pushing in his campaign of being above the fray, of being the person that doesn't want to take political swipes, who wants to focus on issues. Obviously, there's political undertones of that. But that's also a different sort of rhetoric than what you heard when you were following Representative Blackburn. Yeah, so definitely Blackburn was trying to to jazz up the base, play up the base. You know, she met with actually it was the day that she and Bredesen were at this opioid summit. Um, but she went from the summit to a um, I guess a campaign event where she um, was with Joni Ernst, senator from uh, from Iowa and talk to folks in the agriculture community, including some state lawmakers. Uh, Andy Holt was there, Frank Nicely, uh, Jay Reedy, a couple of folks that were clearly invested in, in the agriculture industry here in Tennessee. And she fielded a variety of questions, both uh, Blackburn and Ernst, about tariffs, uh, Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court nomination, um, you know, the effects of uh, the trade deals that are undergoing. And finally, Blackburn ended in Adams, Tennessee, which is a very little town outside of Clarksville. It's beautiful. It's really nice. <laughs> Dave, you said you used to work I used, there. Huh? I used to live there back in the day. That's <laughs> okay. right. That's right. It's, it's, it's lovely. Yeah. And so uh, Blackburn appeared at this, this century farm um, where she was just, again, rallying the troops. She had Mark Green there. They did the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, paid tribute to veterans there, and, and really just trying to get folks excited make her case for why she should be the next uh, senator. I'm really lucky I got a sneak peek at this story and part of it, I won't give it away, but there's a part of it where she evokes this really obvious political reason why you should vote for her and she brings up one of the, the Democratic boogeymen that we've talked about in the past that I thought was both shocking, hilarious, but not surprising. It's it's really interesting. And, it, and again, it speaks to the different political strategies that are playing out between the two senatorial candidates. And, and you know, I, I felt it was important to do this story because, A, you get a different sense of, of these folks when they're actually meeting with voters, uh, with people that, that they meet on the campaign trail. But also, you get a sense of who the person is as they campaign, right? Do, uh, do they get tired? Uh, do they, you know, wipe their brow? Do they drink a lot of coffee? Do 
they, you know, uh, just do they run around? Do their staffers have to control them? So I think it was really kind of an opportunity for me to kind of get a, a again, peel back the onion a little bit more than just the candidate you see on TV. Hopefully you get a sense of that when you read the stories. Uh, we will continue to ride it along the campaign trail with them as this race continues, though. Away from the campaign trail and on this odd online advertising story, we found out a little bit more information about the party and about kind of who's behind these bizarre Google ads. Uh, our reporter and our colleague Joey Garrison is here to talk about what he learned. Joey, what, what, what are the developments in this, this odd story? Yeah, so we, we put up a story on Sunday at Rand that showed the surfacing of these anonymous uh, Google ads. And basically, it's when you typed in uh, Phil Bredesen's name, it pops up uh, a link uh, that the links to our story, but with an altered, slightly altered headline to sort of, ben, you know, take a jab at him, uh, attack him a little bit, but real subtly because, again, these were anonymous, so they didn't look like ads. And anyways, uh, since that uh, story came out on Sunday, a couple days later, one of them popped up during a search uh, for myself and a colleague, said the Tennessee Republican Party. I checked in with Google. They said, yes, the, this sort of advertising did not, um, you know, it, it, it qualified as political advertising in our eyes. And they went back and added uh, that the Tennessee Republican Party paid for three of the ads, I should say. There was also a pro Marsha Blackburn ad uh, that was paid for by the Blackburn campaign, they confirmed to me. And so that's a, a new story that we put up that sort of revealing who is behind these various Google ads. Yeah, so again, the, the weird thing was that they didn't, these Google ads were out there and we weren't sure who had paid for it. And they, for whatever reason, this loophole allowed them not to say who paid for it. Then Google, after seeing Joey's story, says, wait a minute, maybe these are political ads and they should pay for it. Lo and behold, the Republican Party is paying for these ads. Well, yeah, and, and so I asked Google, why weren't these identified as political ads on the front end? And they really didn't answer that question, but basically what appears to be the case is the fact that these were linking to verified news sites, uh, unverified news site, the Tennessean, um, that meant that that was not triggering in their system that these are political ads. Instead, they were just traditional advertising. So it was a, a kind of workaround, I guess. It was a workaround, and you know, I would argue it was kind of a loophole in their system. And again, what's interesting about this is Google is in the process of figuring a lot of this out. They just came out with uh, May 31st new political advertising election policies that these are now adhering to, they say. But also, earlier in this week, of course, President Donald Trump has been bashing uh, Google's Google, being Twitter, biased, saying yeah. that they're manipulating their searches. Sure. And of course, uh, and actually, I just got a, a statement from the Tennessee Republican Party that also accuses Google, a Silicon Valley company, of, of, of being biased against uh, conservatives yet again in this. I think they're kind of playing off that battle with, between Trump and uh, Google that's going on. Tell me now. a little bit more about uh, the Republican Party's side of this, right? When you first initially reported the story, didn't they say essentially, yeah, well, here's what we did. don't know what's going on? Yeah, so when we first learned of these Google ads, and first of all, we kind of had an interest in doing this because these are our stories. You know, they were being presented out there with little, with slightly twisted headlines and completely made up URLs from what our story was. So that's how this really came to us. A couple people on Twitter were like, hey, Joey, who the hell is, why are you guys changing sure. these? And I was like, what are you talking about? And we started looking into it. And uh, so we, I asked about, f I think, five or six Republican-aligned groups, you know, the NRSC, 
uh, RNC, all these various groups denied doing it, and the Tennessee Republican Party would neither conform, confirm nor deny. They said it violated their digital strategy to comment on their ads, uh, which is something you know you hear in reporting. You know that we're just neither going to confirm nor sure. deny. Of course, that did you know open up the possibility that you know obviously they weren't denying it. So here we are, several days later. And and let's be clear too. A couple of these ads are, are distorting these headlines to make it look like make it look bad for Bredesen. But correct me if I'm wrong. There was an ad that made it kind of look like that the Bredesen camp was playing along too. Well, and that's and I, I kind of wrote in my story. Curiously, they're also behind this one. And and this ad popped up in the middle of my reporting on it. Uh, as far to my knowledge, I mean that's and so again, just to be crystal clear, this is an ad that appears to be a pro Bredesen ad <laughs> right. that the Tennessee Republican Party is paying for. Is there something after wrong with questions that? Is there come out about who's paying for these bizarre Google I ads? I certainly would label the pro Bredesen ad. It, it says it links to a story about Bredesen's broadband, rural broadband policy, and I think it refers to him as like Fix It Phil or something. So. Yeah, and again, I became aware of this ad uh, during my reporting of the initial story. Now, this is kind of the ultimate insider's inside thing, right? Like, this isn't going to be something that the person that walks down the street really cares about this. But why is this important? Why? Well, I don't know if they wouldn't care about it. I mean, it's not going to make or break this election. But I think, you know, these kind of questions are being brought up as we're getting to more of a digital campaign. Uh, you know, digital ads are front and center of a lot of the campaigns. And this is something only the most astute person would have noticed these, right? This is just off a, of a search. And you see this headline pop up. And again, like they weren't, it's not like they're totally false headlines either. They're sure. just different than what ours were and well I, I will say in the one of them was takes jab at the mark brown tweets from 2016 and 17 mark brown is the tennessee democratic right. party communications aide who's been now under attack from republicans for these anti-trump tweets well our, our story says you know under fire for explicit tweets but the ad at issue refers to him as a bredesen spokesperson as you know he's not actually on the bredesen campaign role and so that's sort of like the you know, how these ads would sort of alter things to, to help their case or whatever. I still can't understand why the Republican Party would want to promote a Phil ad, like a, a story. Like, that's, that's some, I know this is an insidery issue, but that's some, that's some interesting political strategy to make it seem like both sides are doing it, to spend money from your donors to help the other guy to make it look like everybody's doing it? I think if there's anything that this is showing is how, close this election is going to be and also how uh, this minutia normally that you might not pay attention to is going to just be the attention should get paid to it. You yeah, know, I'll the, tell you what. I mean, like I used to Google stuff and you really don't think much about what, what's popping up. Sure. Front there, at least me. I, I didn't but now this is sort of brought a whole new perspective, and with what Trump was saying too. By and the way. you throw in the yeah. 2016 Russian influence by being just a presence on social media, and you suddenly have to wonder what is it that I'm reading? Is all it accurate? This, is all it misleading? Of this should be paying a little bit more of attention to what we're seeing yeah. and, and where we're getting it from. Joey, thanks for tracking all of this for us. We really yeah, no, it's it. interesting. Yeah. It's been more than a month. Since the primary election, there's been some maneuvering for both the gubernatorial race and the U.S. Senate race. So it's it's a good idea to check in just to see if if the dynamics have changed a little bit or if, if experts are seeing, you know, something uh, some candidate trending a certain way uh, today. 
we spoke with Kyle Kondik. He's an expert, uh, the managing editor at Sabado's Crystal Ball. Uh, it's, a, it's a political newsletter at the University of Virginia. He's a, he's a really smart analyst who tracks races all over the country. He joins us to talk about you know where these, these big races, the governor's race and Senate race, are headed, the dynamics that are at play, takes a quick look at some of the open congressional races, and talks about strategies that might need to uh, unfold to, to help both uh, Republican and Democratic candidates succeed in the fall. Kyle, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So uh, as everybody here knows in Tennessee, we have uh, a really exciting U.S. Senate race and a really exciting governor's race. Can you just give us a lowdown on, on where you see the, the state of the race for, for both of those elections today? So certainly the long-term trend in Tennessee has been toward the Republicans, of course, going back way, way, way back through history. You know, the eastern part of the state um, had some of the you know, stronger Republican areas in the South. And you know, as time went on, um, much of the rest of the South has become Republican, particularly in recent years. Uh, and yeah, I think we've really seen that in the statewide elections uh, in Tennessee, uh, certainly during the, the Obama years. Uh, you know, none of, neither of the, none of the governors or Senate races are really um, particularly uh, competitive at the, at the two-party level. And so this election represents uh, a chance for Democrats to, to, to show that, you know, with, with a different president in the White House and uh, a more favorable electoral environment, I'd say that's true for Democrats all over the country. It's just that, when the, you know, when there's a Republican in the White House, Democrats tend to do better down the ballot. And, and the opposite is true when there's a Democrat in the White House, Republicans tend to do a little bit better. Uh, you've got two open seat uh, big statewide races with the Senate race and the governor's race. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, we'll have to see if the Democrats can can uh, can prove themselves in in these races. That said, I think I, I'd still rather be the Republican in both races. We do uh, ratings uh, of of the races based on who we think is likely to you know likely to win. Uh, we rate the governor's race likely Republican. We rate the Senate race leans Republican. Uh, even though I'd say the bulk of the polling. In the Senate race has shown former Governor Phil Bredesen, the Democrat, uh, leading Marsh Blackburn, the, the uh, Republican. Uh, but I just think it's going to be hard for uh, Bredesen to get to a plurality in that race in, in a state where, uh, you know, the undecideds in the Senate race are, are, are you know, are probably going to be uh, a pretty conservative voters. Uh, so that's where we stand on the races. But I also think that these, these contests are certainly going to be uh, more competitive than what we've seen in Tennessee in, in recent years. Yeah, uh, just just looking again at the, the Bredesen-Blackburn race, can you talk a little bit about the impact that you've seen, obviously in Tennessee, but also elsewhere, on former governors running for Senate races or another statewide election versus sitting members of Congress running for a, a statewide seat? Um, you know, I think that... that um if you're a former governor, you know, you, you by definition, you've won, a, you've won a statewide race or multiple statewide races uh, in the case of Bredesen before. Uh, your, your kind of name ID might be a little bit better, although Bredesen hasn't been governor since, uh, since, uh, since 2010. Um, Blackburn is maybe a little bit better known than your average House member. Um, because she has uh, uh, represented parts of the big media markets in the, in the state. Uh, and she's also been, I think, kind of a more public House member than, than others, but she's someone who's had 
uh, you know, national television platform uh, uh, for some time, and so I think she she entered this race maybe with um, a little again a little bit more name ID than your than your typical um, uh, your, your typical uh, a House member, uh, you know, who just represents you know one district of, of many across the state and, and certainly across the uh, across the country. Uh, you know, the House and governors uh, governorships are often uh, feeders to the. Uh, to the to the U.S. Senate, uh, and so you know, sir, there'd certainly be nothing surprising about a, a former governor or a former House member, uh, you know, winning a Senate seat. I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but there are plenty of former governors and former House members in the Senate. So uh, I think conventional wisdom would say that Phil Bredesen and Carl Dean, the Democrat in the gubernatorial race, should try to run for the center, right, and not run as Democrats in this conservative state. We've already seen Phil Bredesen say that he's not running against Trump. He's running for the people of Tennessee. But we've also seen races in uh, New York and most recently the the gubernatorial primary in in Florida where Democrats who have run much further to the left have been successful. I mean, do you see any sort of path – for a Democrat in Tennessee to kind of run further to the left, or is the only way to win to try to court those people in the middle and maybe peel off a few Republican voters? You know, call me old-fashioned, but I do think that that uh, you, in a state like Tennessee, which is definitely a center-right state, uh, and it's probably even becoming more uh, more conservative over time, or at the very least, you know, it is conservative and has been conservative. I just don't think you can run as a Democrat as sort of a hard left person and, and think you can cobble together a, a statewide plurality. I, I think for, for, for both Bredesen and Dean, I think the hope would be that um, antipathy toward Donald Trump is something that um, already exists and, you know, them as candidates don't, don't really need to do anything about um, to motivate voters. I mean, voters who don't like the president are going to be motivated to vote for Democrats in this kind of electoral environment anyway. So, you know, getting um, getting decent Democratic turnout in, you know, Nashville and Memphis, I don't think should be that hard of an issue um, in this environment. And, and you know, I, I, I do think you basically can um, take a lot of those voters for granted uh, effectively. And what I think will decide the race is how, how many – you know, Trump voters can Dean uh, and Bredesen sort of peel off uh, because, again, you're going to in a state like Tennessee that the president won by 25 points or so. You know, how many how many of them can you win? And you know, if you look at the voting pattern, I, I went back and looked at the 2006 uh, Senate race, which was sort of the last time that the Democrats came um, pretty close to winning. And of course, Bredesen won overwhelmingly in in, in that election. Um, but in the in the uh, 2006 Senate race, you, know, you see uh, Harold Ford, the, the Democratic candidate back then, of course, carrying uh, you know the uh, Nashville and Memphis, but also carrying uh, a number of counties in sort of the uh, kind of western and central parts of the state uh, that you know Donald Trump ended up carrying you know almost every county in the state, including many that ended up that voted for Ford. You know, I would assume that if uh, if Bredesen and Dean are to win, uh, they will need to, you know, uh, peel back uh, some of that Trump vote and put it back in the Democratic column. And I just don't think running as a hard left candidate, I mean, certainly on social issues, I, I wouldn't necessarily advise that. I don't think that's what they're doing either. Uh, but, you know, in order to cobble, cobble together uh, 
you know, a winning path. Uh, I just don't think that um, uh, being, uh, you know, being somebody like, uh, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Andrew Gillum is necessarily a strategy in Tennessee just because it's, uh, it's, a much, it's a much redder state than certainly Florida is, even though Florida is kind of a 50-50 state and, uh, you know, house districts in New York City are a heck of a lot different than yep. Tennessee. Yeah, we've already seen Phil Bredesen go out and he's, he's hunting and, and I, I think maybe the furthest left or w- that either candidate is willing to go is, is advocating for Medicaid expansion, which is really, <laughs> which is really not that far, uh, that far to the left. You, you brought up the, the Ford and Corker race. Um, uh, analysts looking back at that thought that the, the debates, there were three debates in that race. They thought that, that the debates really helped that race tighten a little bit. We have three debates scheduled in the governor's race. There are two at this point set in the Senate race. Do you see any chance that, that Dean or Bredesen could kind of push through through those debates? Or is that an opportunity more for, for Lee and, and Blackburn just to kind of cement this Republican advantage that they have? The way I look at debates is that I think they largely don't matter all that much unless there's something really newsworthy that happens at the debate. And so if I were Dean uh, or Bredesen, I would try to goad my opponent into making some sort of big mistake because, uh, you know, I don't think that that there's usually a huge statewide audience for the actual debate. Uh, Sometimes these things aren't even even televised. I don't know the specifics of the Tennessee debates, but uh, if they're they're televised statewide or not. But uh, if if a candidate basically makes a blunder – that that could be important, and so they're they're important in the sense that you don't want to you don't want to screw them up as a candidate. Sure. Basically, you know, I think that I think they I don't necessarily know if they help, although they can help by hurting the other candidate if that person um, you know makes some sort of mistake. So sure. that's that's what I that's what I would look for. I would look to see if there's a if there's a really big headline that comes out of one of these. I, I think another interesting parallel from 2006 is that the state voted overwhelmingly, as you noted, for Phil Bredesen as governor, but they also elected a Republican, Corker, to their statewide Senate seat. What are the dynamics that go into play that can lead to a state electing someone of one party for one statewide office and someone of the opposite party for a different statewide office? Like, how does that happen? Uh, well, Bredesen was an incumbent, and, and the, the Senate race was, was an open seat, and um, I don't think Bredesen had a particularly strong opponent right. in, in 2006, whereas, you know, Corker and Ford were both well-funded. They were both um, pretty credible uh, candidates who had had success in, in the past. Um, I would think that the voting in this particular election would, would be so different in that I wouldn't expect one of the races to be a, a total blowout and the other one to be close. I mean, I think that they, you know, they both probably should be relatively close. Um but also, again, I you know just where Tennessee is these days, uh, I would think that uh, you, you know you'd rather be a Republican uh, in that state, even even again, and with a decent environment for Democrats. And then you know the other question you have to ask is if Democrats can't win one or both of these races in this kind of environment when they have, I think, two pretty credible candidates. You know, when will they? When would they win a statewide race in Tennessee? And it, it may be that uh, it may be that Democrats really can't at this particular juncture uh, in history. And you know, this 
this election will be a good test of that proposition. So it sounds like you're saying it's probably going to take some sort of obvious stumble from Bill Lee or, or Marsha Blackburn to, to, to make people think that Bredesen or that Dean are not only not favorites, but even have like a legitimate shot at, at pulling out a win. Yeah, I do think I do think that, that they may need a little bit of help in terms of unforced errors from their opponents. I mean, I think that you know, again, I, I, I do see the I do see the Senate race as being maybe a tick more competitive than the mm-hmm. um, than the uh, than, than the governor's race. Uh, but I just I, you know, if, if polling was showing Bredesen at you know forty nine or fifty percent. Uh, that would be one thing, but as far as I can tell, he's generally at around 45, which is good. But that those extra, you know, four or five points that he needs, that's that's where it gets really difficult. Um, and uh, you know, we're in an era where uh, the electorate is uh, more polarized by party than I think even it was in 2006. And if and if that's the case, if there's just less crossover voting. It's just going to be really hard for a Democrat to get over the top in Tennessee. Sure. Uh, but you know, the, the stakes are the stakes are very high, particularly in the race for the Senate, because Democrats are desperate to find um, any Republican target that they can. That's why they, the National Democrats, I think, were so excited about Bredesen getting in this race because the map, as the cycle started, really presented Democrats with only two opportunities: uh, Nevada and Arizona, and. Uh, you know, if they can win Tennessee or maybe Texas, um, that would really, really put the winning the majority um, in reach, particularly if Democrats can defend most, if not all, of the uh, 26 seats they're defending uh, across the country this year. Sure, and at the, at the very least, I was talking with somebody about this the other day, every dollar that the Republicans have to spend in Tennessee on a Senate race is a dollar that they can't spend somewhere else where, where they, they thought they might have to defend, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think when the, when the cycle started, you would not have necessarily thought that Tennessee would be a highly competitive Senate race. And I think that it is. Again, I, I would rather be Blackburn than Bredesen, but uh, I'm not saying I don't think it's going to be uh, competitive. And clearly there's there has been and will be a significant amount uh, of, of money uh, spent on this race. And so that, that in and it itself is, is useful for, for Democrats. And, and hurtful to Republicans because again it's it's a it's a race that uh, was not necessarily on the radar when the cycle started. Re- really quickly, there are three open congressional seats here in Tennessee. Obviously, not getting quite as much attention if for no other reason than we kind of expect Republicans will retain them, but they are open. There's Jimmy Duncan's seat; he's retiring out in East Tennessee, and then Marsha Blackburn's leaving her seat here in Middle Tennessee, and Diane Black, who ran for governor and lost, is also leaving her seat in Middle Tennessee. Do you see the Democrats having any shot in that, or are the Republican nominees that they have in there essentially going to kind of just walk right in and take those offices? Yeah, in all ratings, you know, there are nine, nine House seats in Tennessee. Uh, we have the seven current Republican House seats. We have a safe Republican. The two current Democratic seats we have uh, as safe Democratic. Uh, and I just think those districts are two Republicans um, for the Democrats to really compete for them. And, you know, just in my own conversations with, um, you know, with, with people involved in House campaigns on both sides, those are not districts that, that come up. I mean, open seats are inherently a little bit more competitive than, than incumbent health seats. And so maybe uh, the Democrats will perform a little bit better in those districts, both because of the environment and because they're open than you'd usually expect. But again, that, that's 
you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, I don't think we're talking about these races being particularly close. Kyle Condick, Managing Editor for Sabado's Crystal Ball, the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your insight. Thank you. As the governor's race continues, we take a look at a handful of issues in the lead up to the election. This week, we're looking at guns. We'll start with Governor Bill Haslam on his thoughts about what he would like to see the next governor do. You know, of course, let me say it's beyond the next governor. I mean, anything you're going to do, obviously, you have to get the legislature to come along with you. And so I've always said I think there's some sensible, common kind of first steps you could do from looking at the age um, uh, on uh, assault weapons to background checks to having a more thorough background check, um, so things like that. I just feel like I know we can't agree on everything. Let's see what we can agree and see if we can move forward on that. But again, I think it's the governor can do some things. At the end of the day, you got to get 50 votes in the House and 17 in the Senate to pass anything. I recently caught up with Bill Lee and Carl Dean after an, an event in Nashville to hear their thoughts on what the governor had to say regarding background checks and increasing the age to buy a firearm. First, we will hear from Lee, followed by Dean. I don't think that we should look at um, more restrictions and more regulations on gun ownership. Uh, I think it's important that we protect the rights of law-abiding citizens while looking at the mental health side of this. I think we can accomplish both. I think we can find a way to uh, address gun ownership of the mentally ill and yet protect the Second Amendment rights of law-abiding citizens at the same time. That will be, I, I think Tennessee, it's a national challenge. I think Tennessee has an opportunity to lead here in addressing those two and, and maintaining these rights while addressing this mental health crisis and um, and the way it affects gun violence, and, and I look forward to that opportunity. Well, I think, you know, this, there's two questions there, really. There is what, you know, what, what would you do in the perfect world, and what can you actually do? Mm-hmm. Um, so, to me, I think things such as banning bump stocks, um, looking to uh, increase the age to own an assault rifle to 21, seem to me reasonable proposals that people can agree on and say, this is something that would make our state safer and, and would not interfere with anyone's rights. I think you need to look at what I think needs to happen is that people, we need to look at um, our background um, efforts on people. Um, it seems to me that our goal, we could all agree that we want to keep weapons out of the hands of dangerous people, that if we somehow can succeed in terms of our background um, information to remove firearms from those who have you know, criminal records, may have a mental illness issue, may have, been, have a history of domestic violence, or have had court orders against them for a variety of things, that that would make the state a safer place. Next, you'll hear Lee and Dean's response to a question about arming teachers. I, I just think it's important that we protect our children. Um, we need to do whatever it is that we can to protect children. And whether that is school resource officers, retired military, or arming a teacher that is willing to be part of the solution, that is vetted, that has gone through a rigorous training program, 
Um, whatever approach we take, we need to be certain that we protect our children. Well, I think, number one, I don't think teachers want to be armed. Um, number two, I think that, you know, there are ways that, you know, there, you clearly want people handling firearms around children who are absolutely the most trained, the most uh, experienced and knowledgeable people available. And so looking at police officers, retired officers to, to perform those roles, to me, is a, is a, is a better choice. Um, you know, having a whole bunch of weapons around a school, uh, how they are stored, how they are used, um, creates lots of questions, lots of fears. And I'm with the teachers who, who don't want to be armed, and I think that's the way we, way we should go. And finally, a question about changing the permit fees to obtain a gun and permitless carry or constitutional carry. I, I do think we ought to um, we ought to strengthen the commitment to Second Amendment and reduce permit fees. Um, I've said before that I would sign a permitless carry uh, bill if it came across my desk. You've got to have, I think it's always a legitimate uh, question about whether fees are set at the appropriate level. They can't be so high that um, it discourages people from getting a permit. And But whether, I don't know that they should be eliminated entirely. I think you've you got to have a permitting process. Um, and I would not be in favor of constitutional carry. Everybody expected a ton of money to flow into the U.S. Senate campaign here in Tennessee, and it started. We are seeing some outside spending on a uh, TV digital blitz uh, here in, in late August. Political reporter Natalie Allison broke down uh, the ads and where they're coming from, the impact on the race. Natalie, just tell us a little bit more about this campaign. So we saw in late August Americans for Prosperity Tennessee take out a $2 million ad attacking Americans for Prosperity is the conservative political advocacy arm of the Koch Network, and they had mentioned before that they were going to be involved in grassroots campaign efforts in support of Marsha Blackburn in the race. Um, this isn't the first ad we've seen them take out in May. Actually, on Memorial Day weekend, they took out a full-page ad in the Tennessean thanking Marsha Blackburn for voting against a $1.3 trillion spending bill. Um, and and then we hadn't heard much about from them about the race since then, and so in late August they took out a an ad attacking Phil Bredesen. They are attacking his record. They said that he supported taxes while he was governor of Tennessee. They said that he spent millions and millions of dollars renovating his governor's mansion, and uh, they wanted to appeal to Tennesseans who are tied on cash, saying this guy raised your taxes. He spent a lot of money on upgrading the mansion. He built a party cave. Uh, they were referring to a banquet hall that was constructed that was partially underground. Um, and that's used for events there at the governor's mansion. Yeah. If you follow Tennessee politics, you've probably heard about this Bredesen bunker that they've, that they've built, that he built with his wife, Andrea Conti. The Bredesen campaign kind of pushed back on this advertising saying, we didn't even live in the mansion. We lived here in Nashville, right? And pushed back on this idea that they supported higher taxes. They essentially just called this more misleading political gamesmanship, right? Yeah. So the, the Bredesen campaign fires back and says, Phil and his wife didn't even live there uh, as governor. They they owned a house in Nashville, and they continued to live in that house during both of his terms in office. Um, and they said that the renovations that 
took place during his time in office were, were necessary. So they basically installed elevators, ramps. They made the home accessible to people who had disabilities, something that hadn't been done before. Uh, there was lead paint. There was a leaking roof. Um, there were other upgrades that needed to be made, they said. And so much of what they did was just bringing the house up to code, making it ready for the next governor, who turned out to be Governor Bill Haslam, who moved in with his family in January 2011. Um, so Haslam's family was actually the first governor's family to move in after the upgrades were made. Phil Bredesen and his wife actually didn't live there. It's it's a it's a lovely home. They've renovated it, like you talked about. It's open to the public. You can go have tours of it. I've been I've been there a couple of times. Um, and and again, this is a this is an attack that I think Bredesen has, has been used to. Kind of in his in his response ad, he was like, "This is more examples of of my my opponent not wanting to talk about the issues and of being a DC insider and 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 sort of that rhetoric that we anticipate hearing more of as this as this campaign goes on." There's also a new ad, another one from the Bredesen camp. That is all from Trump, the Trump rally when he was here in Nashville earlier in the year. It's just audio from Trump. And that's kind of the audio that we talked about, I believe, in our first podcast where where he's just talking about Phil, what's his name, and that Phil's going to vote with Chuck Schumer. And so it's um, – and, and, and Natalie can speak to this too. It's kind of this idea of the, the Blackburn people are trying to make this a national race evoking Trump and Trump's ideas and the Bredesen people are trying to say this is a Tennessee race with Tennessee issues – and I happen to be a Democrat. And that's that's kind of what's at, at play here with the with the Coke ads too, right? Yeah. Well, what happened was uh, initially right after the Coke ad dropped, uh, Phil Bredesen's campaign released a digital ad, which I think it is quite safe to say they had it ready. They were anticipating attack ads coming. And so it's a very general ad. Um, Phil Bredesen is saying, well, the attacks have started. I would rather be talking about ideas. And so they released that the same day the Coke ad came out. And then the next day, uh, they actually rolled out a, a TV ad of their own in which Phil Bredesen, he references this Coke ad. He says, oh, I didn't live in the governor's mansion. And no, I never raised sales tax. And, and he's, he's basically responding to some of those allegations made against him that, that weren't exactly true. And so he, he continues to say, I, I, I would rather be talking about ideas instead of making attacks. You know, as a TV viewer, I love watching political ads. That's essentially why I watch TV. And so I'm so excited that we're moving into this season where like, that's all we're going to see on TV. You know, there's going to be, I guess, actual programming in between, but it feels like if we're seeing this much right now, it's only going to go up. So that's, that's pretty exciting, right? And I'm, I'm sure listeners are excited about that too. Natalie, thanks for breaking that down for us. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Now that it's general election season, we hope and anticipate that both the senatorial campaign and the gubernatorial campaign will kind of shift to issues away from like this conservative or democratic riling of the base. Now, it might not, but I think voters like to hear issues. One came out recently from uh, the Democratic gubernatorial nominee. Carl Dean was talking about the idea of letting municipalities create their own gas tax, which is a little bit different than the plan that Governor Bill Haslam implemented with his Improve Act. Yeah, essentially, Dean wants to allow county governments to decide uh, whether they want to raise their gas tax if they or, or implement a gas tax on its own. Uh, this idea is really an extension of the Improve Act, which, uh, for those that don't remember, uh, was passed last year in the legislature. Uh, was kind of a close vote. People were were nervous about it the whole time. Essentially, it raised the gas tax by four cents last year. An additional, uh, and this is the gas on uh, the tax on regular gasoline. An additional cent this year, and then there will be one more cent increase next year for a total of six cents. 
um, again, over a three-year period. The argument why that that was needed was basically uh, we need to raise revenue to pay for our infrastructure and transportation needs. Uh, So Dean's idea is to essentially tack onto that, say, hey, local governments want to be able to fund these projects. Therefore, we should allow and, and, you know, uh, essentially give them the tools to to go after this even more. If you're a Nashville voter, you'll remember the spectacular failure of the transit plan earlier this year that was tied to getting revenue from one of these gas taxes. So obviously you could see why this might be an appealing plan for somebody if you're leading a municipality. It costs a lot of money to run a, a campaign like this. And you could obviously fail in spectacular fashion. And and a proponents of a gas tax would say, go out and ask somebody right now if they know this gas tax increase is in effect. Chances are they won't. Obviously, Bill Lee and other conservatives are going to say, we don't run on taxes. We're not a we're not a tax increase state. Right. Yet at the same time, you, you heard Governor Haslam all the time say, we don't take on debt to build infrastructure. Right. And there's only there's limited options about how you can build infrastructure, and one of them is raising a gas tax. Yeah, and so when this story came out, when, when Dean came out with this proposal, we immediately asked uh, Billy for his thoughts on it. And essentially, he didn't really answer. I mean, he said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm against all tax increases. So I asked, you know, uh, a follow-up of, uh, did you, are, are you proposing a rescinding, you know, a, a repeal of the, the IMPROVE Act? Didn't get uh, quite a response. Uh, more recently, our colleague Emily West asked a, a question of uh, the governor, Governor Bill Haslam, when he was at an event. And uh, he essentially said, Uh, that he thought it was kind of an odd answer. He thought that this idea from Dean would create competition in a way where if you had uh, somebody 50 mile or 50 yards away or 50 feet away from each other across County lines, that would create this competition, uh, which could be a a problem. Yeah. This is idea being that like Davidson County could compete with Williamson County because they have gas. That's 25 cents cheaper or something. But isn't that the free market? And it happens with products all the time. And it happens across state lines. Frankly, you would hope that the gas stations in those counties weren't colluding to raise prices on everybody. Governor Haslam did add that he prefers to leave decisions like this up to local governments. But he said, I, again, still think Dean's idea essentially could be problematic. So. Haven't seen a ton of talk on taxes on this on the Senate side. There have been, you know, discussions in the past about raising a gas tax federally. We'll see if something like this maybe comes up in the second official debate that has been scheduled in the Senate race. We were a little nervous there that there might be none. Then we had one. Now it sounds like we're going to have a second one. Yeah, that's right. The next, uh, the second Senate debate will be October 10th in Knoxville. Uh, that's going to be hosted by the Howard Baker Center for Public Policy and uh, Next Star Media Group. Uh, so they're going to have the debate run statewide on television stations throughout Tennessee. Uh, this will be the second debate. Like we said, in 2006, the Corker Ford race had three debates. It's looking like this may be the only other one. So uh, September 25th is the other debate that we, as the USA Today Network, are hosting. Uh, and then the second one being October 10th. And as we've noted before, there was supposed to be one, or at least there were plans of having one in West Tennessee. It's not uncommon to have a debate in each grand division in the state. 
there's it looks like there's not going to be one in West Tennessee or in Memphis, and I, th- I think that voters are a little bit frustrated about yeah, that. Yeah, certainly. If you haven't seen it, uh, the the Commercial Appeal, our sister newspaper, uh, there's been some editorializing and folks, uh, you know, screaming out about their frustrations that there isn't going to be a West Tennessee debate. So there was some political news out of West Tennessee this uh, recently. We saw that Lee Harris, he's a state senator. Uh, out of Memphis, formally resigned his Senate seat, as everybody expected him to, so he could take over as Shelby County mayor. Again, that's kind of a procedural move, but it leaves a seat open. There's a chance that they could appoint someone. Uh, We expect that state rep, Akbari, Ramesh Akbari, who was, uh, again, a a representative there who won the primary there, will easily win that that seat uh, in in the fall. So I suppose they could appoint her now if they wanted to. But but he he resigned his seat. That was the the second uh, change in the state house this week. We also saw Bill Ketch uh, state senator uh, out of Murfreesboro, is that right, Dave? Yep. Rutherford County mayor now, um, you know, resigned so he could officially take office. So uh, obviously a flurry of changes that happen in the lead up to the general election, but uh, we're trying to keep track of it all. So hopefully you guys are informed. And, and please inform us. We want to hear from you if you have questions or concerns or you want to talk about a certain issue or hear from certain candidates. Uh, you know, send us emails. Give us a call. Uh, obviously, please continue to, to rate us on iTunes or wherever you hear podcasts. It really helps people find this cast and, and gives us some really important feedback. Uh, but for now, again, we appreciate your support. This is Grand Divisions. I'm Dave Boucher, investigative reporter. And I'm Joel Ebert, political reporter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.